The number of older people with care or support needs is on the rise across the globe. Also, the number of people who have chronic illnesses, disabilities or other health conditions that means that they need to be looked after and cared for are also on the rise because of the demographic aging of our societies. And there's a diversity in the way long-term care provision is organized and the way it is financed across the world, but still it relies incredibly heavily on the investment of informal or family carers. Uh, an estimated 70 to 95% of all care needs are provided for by informal carers. They're often called the invisible workforce in long-term care systems. They're very rarely registered or they're not formally recognized. So especially in a crisis of care that we're living through with the pandemic, which will have not just uh, physical health uh, implication with the, the, the COVID-19 uh, illness itself, but the incredible uh, mental health footprint it's going to have and the those patients who are for, unfortunately suffering with long COVID symptoms, there's going to be an enhanced pressure on informal carers. So today, uh, Stacey Egemonos is joining me uh, for a conversation about all of this. He is the executive director of Eurocarers. Eurocarers is the European network working with and for informal carers. This network brings together 73 organizations from 26 countries, and they really aim to ensure that the growing care needs of the European population are addressed in a universal and equitable way, and that the vital contribution that informal carers are delivering is valued, is recognized, and is supported. So join me for this conversation with Stacey, and I'm sure that there's going to be uh, a lot that you will take away afterwards. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. So thank you so much to my guest, who is joining me actually from Brussels. So we're almost in the same city with Stacy Igemonos. Hi, Stacy. Hi, Agnes. Thanks for thank your you invitation. Thank you so much, Stacy, for coming on, on the podcast and having this very, very important conversation with me about carers. Um, because, you know, the pandemic has been going on for a year now and looks like it could go on for another year. And we speak a lot about, I feel we speak a lot about isolated people who are lonely. We speak a lot about childcare, parents struggling with childcare and remote work. But I feel that we're not speaking so much about carers. So before we do that, Stacy, would you tell listeners a little bit who are informal carers, what are they doing your organization, Eurocarers, is the voice of informal carers at the European level. So how do we need to imagine the the, the carers, the, who they are and, and what they do? Sure. Um, so a carer, or at least based on the definition we use, which is, um, I should say, a definition which is uh, used by more and more people these days, 
are people who provide usually unpaid long-term care to someone with a chronic disease, a disability, or any other long-lasting care need. So, for example, it can be an addiction outside of a professional context. So we're essentially talking about families, but also friends and neighbors. And, and that last part of the group is, is extremely important because it also tends to be disregarded by policymakers. But in rural areas, for example, rural regions in, in Europe, uh, friends and neighbors play a, a very active role in the provision of long-term care. So note, as said, usually unpaid. Uh, because it, there are some regions and countries where uh, informal care, carers are um, recognized by public authorities or at least, you know, acknowledged and, um, and compensated mm -hmm. uh, financially sometimes. And a typical carer in Europe, unsurprisingly, I guess, because that's probably an issue you've already addressed uh, through your, your series, is, is a woman. So there's a strong gender dimension, and it's a woman between 45 and 75 years of age. Thank you for that. And, and you know, very, you know, off, off the ground, when, when you speak, I'm just listening to you, thinking of all the people who we know are having long-term health impacts from COVID, right? The, the long COVID sufferers, they are just going to add up even more to, to, to the population that needs to be looked after. That's exactly right. Um, the situation was already pretty complex before the COVID uh, crisis, because as, as you already know, um, one of the key challenges facing Europe is uh, demographic aging, and as a result, a growing prevalence of age-related diseases, chronic conditions, a growing demand for care, and at the same time, a sustainability challenge, because obviously the balance between those who contribute financially to the system through taxation and, and uh, so social security, and those who receive or benefit from the system is, is shifting, you know, as a result of demographic aging. And so already before the crisis, we could see how, you know, um, informal carers across Europe uh, were facing more and more uh, pressure because there is a tendency by public authorities to uh, rely heavily on families, friends and neighbors who are, you know, by many who are seen as a free workforce. Well, mm -hmm. the point we're trying to convey is it's not a, a free workforce because there's a lot of negative impacts um, stemming for, from caregiving, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that in a second. And so what the COVID crisis changed is that it exacerbated those challenges because uh, just like all of us, obviously carers find themselves completely uh, isolated as a result of the, the constraints, you know, the lockdowns. But also, as a result of the reduction of uh, care services and support measures targeted at them when available, you know, it's not all countries and regions across Europe, unfortunately, but we're ensuring that will change in the future. And so, yes, they, it's more care and more intense care provided by carers. And yet, you're absolutely right, they're completely invisible still in the, certainly in the media. And, you know, I was just even thinking that what, while you were talking and listening to you is that there have been so much, of course, um, 
so much uh, news coverage again about care homes um, and the vulnerable population and the family carers, you know, they are looking after the most vulnerable, right? Who are also the most vulnerable in face of a COVID infection. So this must add, coupled with the isolation, so much stress and pressure on them um, that is really, really very bad for their own mental health, for their own health, actually. Yes, absolutely. They're in first line, really. Um, They are actually, based on research, the main providers of long-term care in Europe. So this is based on EU research. Actually, according to some evaluations, as much as 80% of all long-term care is provided by informal carers in Europe. So they are a central element in the provision of long-term care. And um, so they're in first line in close contact with uh, the most at-risk age groups when it comes to the COVID uh, pandemic. But they also, many of them actually belong to the the at-risk group because Mm -hmm. of their age. And, um, And in terms of the impact of caregiving, when not adequately supported, because support measures... Uh, help a lot when they're available, but we see uh, an, a, you know a stunning impact in terms of access to employment and full-time employment, but also in terms of poverty and social exclusion, because many carers tend to contribute financially to the costs of care or of professional care, so they pay for medication. They also have higher utility bills, transportation costs, and so on. And last but not least, also, we see um, a higher prevalence of health issues and mental health issues among uh, non-working carers compared to non-carers. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the, it is a vicious circle where when, again, no adequate support is available, carers may very well become patients themselves. And, uh, yeah, and given the situation we're in, I don't think it is wise for decision makers to let uh, carers who are indispensable become patients themselves. I have two questions that immediately come to me. Uh, the first one, for the benefit of the of the listeners, can you give an estimate about how many people we're talking about, how many um, people or what percentage of, of the population is uh, engaged in long-term care? So based on the definition I mentioned earlier, which is a, a broad definition, which does not include any uh, minimum amount of, of hours per week or per month, we estimate that there's at least uh, 20% of the EU population involved in caregiving. Mm-hmm. Now, when you introduce more uh, strict criteria in terms of minimum amount of, of caregiving, uh, the, the most accurate data we have uh, is actually yet to be published. Uh, it's part of a report by Eurofound, the European Agency on Living and Working Conditions in Europe. Quite frankly, I'm not quite sure when the report will be published. It was um, uh, the data was sent to me informally uh, a couple of weeks ago. But according to that new report, uh, there's at least 44 million uh, informal carers in Europe, which is approximately mm-hmm. 10% of the EU population. And I suspect um, the the criteria used in that definition is provision of informal care on a regular basis, which is 
um, you know, uh, every day or, or several several days a week. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, we're speaking mm -hmm. we're speaking about a significant number of people. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and then the the second question, uh, because you 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 finished, uh, you know, by saying that that policymakers uh, they need to acknowledge and they need to they cannot neglect. Um, informal carers, this group of people. And so what um, what are some of the the support and the services or the the recognition that that you would like uh, your network uh, would like to see most happen, you know, across the board? What what is it that informal carers, family carers really need that would really provide them support and respite? that governments can can put in place? Sure. In, in 2018, actually at the end of 2018, we published uh, a document which, which is called the, you know, it's our proposed EU strategy on carers, which builds on, on 10 steps or 10 boxes that we believe should be ticked to develop uh, what we call a carer-friendly policy environment. So, so these steps uh, are interrelated and their role essential for uh, the achievement of our mission and the recognition of carers. The first one is to have a proper and good definition of what informal care is mm -hmm. in your legislation. So we should get rid of uh, narrow focused definitions focusing only on you know, uh, specific diseases or uh, focus exclusively on disability given obviously the demographic aging problem I mentioned earlier, or, or you know, uh, focusing entirely and exclusively on, on blood relatives, uh, because that those definitions uh, ignore, you know, uh, huge uh, groups of, of the population of informal carers who need support. That's the first thing. So good definition. And then based on that definition, we need to... Uh, put in place identification mechanisms. So that includes social surveys, census, which exist in some countries. I'm thinking about Ireland, for example. But we also need to train and inform uh, care professionals, and in particular, uh, primary care actors, so general practitioners, nurses, pharmacists, who on a daily basis um, come across informal carers. And so are able to identify them and maybe to ask, do they need support and maybe refer them to other services? Then we need to assess the needs of carers to understand how it is that we can obviously, um, you know, overcome, help them overcome the, the challenges they face and alleviate the burden of caregiving. And then there's a long list of services which exist. Um, across Europe already, but it's usually extremely patchy. So, mm -hmm. um, so we see good practices here and there, but the 10 steps um, I mentioned, which you can find on our website, uh, it's very rare that the 10 boxes are actually ticked in a country or, or region. There's a few exceptions, like, again, Ireland, Finland, uh, and, and, and some countries come close to taking the, the 10 boxes, but the majority of European countries, I'm sorry to say, uh, you know, are far from uh, achieving the targets. Mm. 
So again, we're trying to inform those uh, policy developments and uh, and to make a difference. Even though it should be said to maybe conclude on a positive uh, note, <laughs> that um, again, up until the beginning of the pandemic, uh, you know, we were seeing some countries and, and regions um, preparing or, or taking interesting steps uh, in the right direction. Uh, not least because of the coordination efforts uh, of the European Commission. Mm-hmm. So, so that's good, and and we hope that will continue. Of course, I, I very much appreciate you taking us through these ten points. And so, I guess the first point and the first two points are really on um, breaking this visibility, invisibility, right? To 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 bring them out and 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 be aware of who they are. And I wonder whether some of the informal carers may also not identify you know, as such, but just say, okay, that's, that's just the things that I have to do for my family or that's just the thing I do and may not be aware that there are maybe supports out there. And also I, I wanted to pick up on something that you said when we had our webinar a few weeks back on a, on a different issue where you said that, and that really stayed with me, you said that a lot of the carers become carers overnight. So it's it's all just falls onto you in just overnight, as you said, and and then then where do you go? How do you know what to do, where to start? Um, so it's very important. Of course, yeah, yeah. It's um, well. First of all, it's an issue that concerns everyone in society uh, because ultimately all of us will be faced with care needs or or caregiving responsibilities at some point in our life. And yes, indeed, in reality, uh, all of that uh, happens usually very quickly. Uh, and, and yes, overnight sometimes. So someone falls uh, ill in the family, boom, it's dementia, and you have to deal with a completely new disease you know nothing of, and it's you're struggling to find information. Care professionals are able to provide you with uh, some information, but usually limited information. Because they're busy and, and, and they're under pressure as well. And then you go back home and you have to deal with symptoms and you have to worry and you, you know nothing about the potential rights and, and services and benefits you may have access to. And, and usually you have to discover all of that for yourself. Um, and, and that adds to the burden and to the challenge. You know, I remember a testimonial, um, from a carer once at an event and, and she was saying, you know, the, the main issue in my life is not my caregiving. The main issue in my life is the constant battle to access services. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the real issue. Yeah. And, um, and so that's not normal. And, and, you know, coming back to, to what you were saying about breaking the invisibility of carers. Yes, it is about breaking the invisibility, but it's also about, dare I say, breaking the hypocrisy mm-hmm. of informal care. This assumption that it is normal to rely on families uh, to take over or to take on, um, you know, caregiving responsibilities. It is normal to some extent, you know, it is normal to care about someone in the family. It is not normal to care for and and take on, you know, sometimes very technical uh, complex issues yeah. and complex issues. Yeah. 
while remaining uh, productive and active. You know, you are still expected to remain productive and to go to work. And, you know, plus, obviously, you want to maintain your social life, which is absolutely normal. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of tension there that we need to uh, shed light on and, and we need to, you know, find solutions um, to overcome the challenges because, again, um, there is no universal access to long-term care in Europe as it stands without informal carers. So if they disappear, if they, we don't support them, if the population of informal carers breaks down you know, uh, we, we are in deep trouble. Uh, I don't know how we will address the growing long-term care needs in Europe. I, I appreciate you you saying this. I think that was so on point what you said about breaking the hypocrisy and and just ex- accept expecting um, everyone just to do it naturally, and and also that it comes to you naturally, and then you just sacrifice yourself doing it um and you made a very important point as well that these informal carers very often still have to you know go out and 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 work and sometimes they may be the only um breadwinner in in the family so how how does that work in relation to employment do you know uh, are you aware of statistics about how what percentage of these informal carers are in work um, or those who aren't, can they be, or would they like to be? And then I'll ask some follow-up questions about the actual management and workplace expectations. Yes. Um, well, the reality is we we have data about the negative impact of informal caregiving on access to full-time employment, as I was as I was saying before, because because many informal carers are forced as a result of their caregiving to um, to reduce their working hours, uh, and some, um, you know, are forced to leave the labor market altogether. Mm-hmm. But, but again, what we see based on, on statistics, and I'm sorry, I don't have the exact figures with me right now, but, uh, but uh, a majority of uh, of carers work, and a majority of them work full time. Yeah. Which means that, uh, you know, in, in many cases, they have two full times. You know, they, uh, they work their full time, uh, at the office or, you know, or, or at the factory. And then they go back home and they have another full time dealing with, you know, their caregiving, uh, responsibilities, which again, as you can imagine, has a huge impact on, on their mental health and, and their, their health generally and their social life. So, so, so there, there's a, there's a key issue that needs to be addressed by developing work-life balance mechanisms, but also by raising awareness among employers and trade unions, because uh, those players obviously can make a real difference in the life of, of, of informal carers. And so why is it important for, for employers and and maybe even individual managers, team leaders, to educate themselves more about caregiving and and what this means, and and you know the magnitude of it, and the roles and tasks of of caregivers. It is extremely important for employers because ultimately it's it's a win win. 
And um, and in fairness, it seems that a growing number of of companies and big companies are have come to realize that it is a win-win. Uh, it is a win-win because if you don't properly support your your employees with caregiving responsibilities, what you're facing is uh, absenteeism, presenteeism. So people who come to work but actually their mind is elsewhere, so they're not really productive. Or, uh, you know, uh, staff reducing their working hours or leaving, uh, leaving your team altogether and, and sometimes very experienced, uh, staff given the, the age group. Yeah, exactly. I, I mentioned before. And all of that obviously is, has a huge cost on, on companies. And so, uh, and so what we see is that and what many employers now, uh, come to realize is that it's probably cheaper uh, to invest in measures to accommodate the needs of employees with caregiving respons- responsibilities than it is to, you know, uh, to deal with uh, absenteeism, presenteeism, or uh, recruitment uh, for new staff members and training. Um, so, yeah, so there's quite a, a few measures that, um, that have emerged and that could be included in human resources strategies and policies. Uh, to successfully address the needs of, of uh, employees with caregiving responsibilities. I think here we're in the prime work-life integration territory, right? Because if you have such a caregiving uh, role, if you are the care of somebody with complex needs or disability or injury or illness, it's very difficult to perpetuate this ideal worker norm and you're not just ceasing to be a carer when you show up for work, as you say about, you know, presenteeism. So there really has to be a lot more conversations, I think, and normalization of the issue also at the workplace. Uh, have you come across some examples, initiatives that you've seen by either employers or NGOs or policymakers that really stood out to you where you thought, okay, that can be a great example because it makes such a positive impact in in the life of of a carer. Sure, there are there are many uh, good examples actually um, developed by employers themselves. So that's an important uh, element because it means um, you know good things can also emerge without necessarily uh, you know a specific uh, legislative process in place. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on a voluntary basis, employers can actually. Uh, Take the lead and develop good measures uh, targeted at, at carers. So, in in terms of examples, we what we see are practical measures. So, you know, the provision of flexible working hours, awareness raising campaign to invite um, employees with caregiving respons- responsibilities to identify themselves as such, to feel confident about approaching their manager and say, well, actually, you know, I'm facing ch- challenges at home. And that impacts my work because, you know, I'm a carer and, and, you know, and people should feel confident to, that they are able to do that, uh, uh, in their company. And that will not come at the expense of their career or their, you know, advancement. Um, the provision of part-time work uh, on a temporary basis, longer care leaves provided by, uh, by employers. But also, you know, measures to try and minimize um, the financial disadvantages of being a carer. So 
for example, paid emergency leave or, or you know, measures to minimize uh, the income loss uh, with working time reduction. So temporary part-time because of caregiving responsibilities and the employer, you know, accepts to cover the, the income loss for that uh, temporary period. Paid leave, um, but also, you know, again, practical um, practical support by um, organizing, for example, information and counseling sessions during lunch breaks, uh, you know, care brokerage. So putting the em employee uh, in touch with external services, support services, um, awareness raising campaigns, promotion of positive attitudes towards the staff and, and managers. So there is, as you can see, there is a long list. And, um, and, and there's actually a very interesting initiative, if I may uh, promote the work of, of one of our member organizations, uh, an interesting initiative put in place. I think it, it, you know, it was put in place a long time ago. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, I may be mistaken, 2004, called Employers for Carers, so put in place by Carers UK. And what Employers for Carers does is it works with companies as, as a bit of a uh, consult consultancy service for human resources um, uh, teams. Mm -hmm. So they go to companies and look at human resources policies with, you know, uh, with services to adapt those to the needs of carers and see to what extent and uh, they can be adapted or, or supplemented with additional measures to address the needs of carers. And, uh, and the result, as a result of that initiative, uh, there's now a long list of companies and, and sometimes, you know, big, big companies involved in, uh, in, the, in the initiative. And those companies are themselves becoming champions because obviously they see the benefits they reap uh, out of those uh, of those measures. So I think this is this is a, an interesting um, an interesting approach and an interesting initiative, which again is is based on a win win, and which can be you know potentially replicated in other parts of of Europe. Absolutely. I, I remember somebody telling me about an example that I also thought was very interesting. Um, and, and I think perhaps a, lo a lot of employers who haven't, you know, approached this issue yet uh, may have some, um, may have some, some false ideas that this is expensive, that, you know, this is going to cost us a lot of money. But in fact, a lot of, you know, a lot can be done relatively cost effectively and and somebody was telling me once that even just taking an empty office in your organization and turning that into a safe space for carers to go during the day if they need to take a phone call you know from you know their an institution or a medical professional or in this case it was for children with complex needs you do not want to have this conversation in front of your colleagues. Um, and then taking that room and putting in some leaflets, putting in some extra information for them to be able to find. Because, I mean, there is still a lot of stigma or, or discomfort, I think, associated with, with having all this responsibility. First of all, because especially if you're a parent, I would think you think, was this my fault? Did, did I do something 
you know, to to have this or but also as as a carer for other relatives, you think, how is this going to impact my work? Will I lose my work for this? Are are they getting uncomfortable because this is taking too much of my time? So I'm sure that there is a lot of anguish associated with it to to especially in the context of, of work. There is a lot of anguish indeed and, and you know and, and I think the general um, the general approach is is as you rightly said to create this safe space for carers, you know. And and just again, just um, an awareness raising campaign in the company to say it is fine to you know to uh, identify yourself uh, and to present yourself to your manager, uh, you know, uh, as a carer or as, a, as an employee who is sometimes struggling to to combine, you know, um, uh, his or her professional responsibilities with caregiving, you know, that already makes a big difference. Uh, mm-hmm. the, this idea that it's fine to approach your manager and say, look, I'm struggling. Because the, obviously the um, inability to, to do this puts a lot of, of, of pressure on carers. And obviously now we're discussing or we're speaking about uh, a so-called kind of normal environment, but obviously we need yeah. to, to take into consideration the new normal we're in at the moment, where we're all working from home. And as you said in your introduction, uh, you know, that may last again for a few additional months. So think about those carers who are at home, um, you know, having to combine uh work and care telework while teleworking uh it's even more difficult um to actually juggle with all of these tasks and activities and and since uh, you know there is also a debate about um, the right to disconnect uh you know when teleworking how does that work with people with caregiving responsibilities how do you juggle all of these tasks in your day you know, that's a real question that needs to be taken into consideration when discussing the future of telework, for example. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, so it is a very interesting, interesting, um, interesting question. But as I said, um, there's a lot of data and evidence about, uh, about the win-win. Uh, and, um, and many employers uh, are now championing those approaches. Um, so the, our job now is really to make sure more and more people, um, understand and, uh, and have access to that data and those measures, those practices to, to replicate them. Um, Absolutely. Um, before we go to the last question, uh, Stacy, would you like to tell listeners the website of Eurocarers, uh, where can they find more information? Where can they find this 10 uh, point action plan that that you're demanding and and find out more about your work and and maybe get in touch with you sure thank you uh so our website is www.eurocarers.org and on the website you will find all the background information uh, and data we collect about the prevalence and needs of of carers across europe you will find uh, position papers uh, and policy briefings highlighting the various aspects of the caregiving experience, including work-life balance. And you will also find 
um, documents uh, presenting good practices about how to address those needs, including obviously the strategy uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago. Thank you. Um, so now, if if uh, you know, I think this this issue is so important and not not talked about <laughs> uh, enough. Uh, so if I could, you know, ask you to highlight one issue or give listeners one takeaway or give one advice that you think I would like this to stick with you. Uh, what would what would what what would that be? I would I would say that um, I would suggest for each of us uh, and those you know those of you who are listening, uh, think about who in your family or you know or among your friends has, in your opinion, caregiving responsibilities. And if you do this, I'm sure you will find at least one person, if not you. And and then once you've done that, realize that, you know, even though it feels like it's it's only normal for you to be involved in, in the provision of caregiving, and it is to some extent because it's based on solidarity and in intergenerational solidarity, which are great values. But why is it that um, these responsibilities should come at the expense of your social and professional life? Why is it that you as an informal carer or your friends or family members as informal carers should face the challenges they're facing in terms of juggling between their caregiving responsibilities and professional social life? And once you've done that, um, become a champion you know, and, and speak about the need to, uh, to address uh, the situation of carers and to develop solutions uh, to ensure, uh, you know, that caregiving is not a burden. You know, caregiving, I think, is a great and beautiful thing. Uh, it should not become a burden, uh, you know, uh, for people involved in what it is essentially uh, a matter of solidarity. So that's what I would, I would say. It concerns all of us, and uh, and so we should all be champions. That that was really great. And you know what? When you started speaking, I also thought about, and maybe listeners can also think about who they would want to take care of them if something happened. You know, if I broke a leg or, you know, got hit by a car or if I developed some serious illness, life-altering illness, who would take care of me? And and how can they do that while, you know, not uh, not totally, um, you know, dissolving in this care, uh, not sacrificing their themselves for the care? I wouldn't want that, right? I would want them to stay healthy and happy and then and then have a have a way of doing that. So that's, that was a great, great provocative end to this podcast conversation. Thank you very much, Stacey. I really enjoyed speaking to you and having you on the podcast today. And I, I was taking a lot of notes and I'm sure listeners also took away a lot from it. And um, I just wish you really the best of success uh, in your work and, and with Eurocares going forward. Thanks, Emilian Agnes, and thanks for the opportunity again. Uh, it was great and, and congratulations on your on your series, which is extremely timely and, and, and relevant. I'm sure our, our paths will cross again in the future.